Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, You Are Here, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in May 2019. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to our special guest, Pete Kirkwood. Pete is the owner of the Workshop Brewing Company, Hearsay's home venue, and co-host of the Capitalist Podcast. Pete's here to speak with me about the theme for our next main stage show, which will take place at the Workshop Brewing Company on October 21st, 2019. In our first story, Nancy Baker isn't exactly sure where she is during a memorable family dinner. So on a misty November evening last year, my son brought us to the damp doorstep of an old Zurich church converted into a restaurant. My husband, my daughter, and I all looked at each other with worried glances. We should have known. My son Taylor values very interesting and unusual experiences. For instance, For my husband's birthday, when a nice polo shirt would have sufficed, he booked them scuba diving in the Denver Aquarium shark tank for an hour. (laughs) Then, on another occasion, Taylor booked himself on a 10-mile road race across the Colorado mountains that emulated Colorado miners sprinting into town to stake their claim with a brain-sweating pack mule on the end of a rope. Um, His was called Vernon, and the race is called Get Your Ass Across the Pass. (laughs) So last summer, Taylor married a lovely, very patient young woman named Meredith, and they moved to Switzerland. So my husband and I decided to go visit them this last fall. Now, we communicated to Taylor our um, expectations for the trip. We said, no zip lining in the Alps, no goat wrestling, no 007 life-changing adventures, please. Our bar is very low. We just want to spend time with you guys. But Taylor has a very, very different bar. So when we met for our first evening, our jet-lagged dinner, one hour after we had just come from the airport, he excitedly confessed, guys, I've arranged for us to visit the Alsace region. We catch a train in the morning, we arrive before noon, we have lunch, we do a wine tour and tasting, then we walk around the village and shop, there's an open farmer's market, then we have dinner at this amazing place, this restaurant that's got like a Michelin star, and then we're going to catch the last train back to Zurich and we'll get back around 1 o'clock in the morning. And I said, through like gritty, blurred, jet-lagged eyes, I said, um, Man, that that sounds like a lot. When is this? And he goes, tomorrow, see you at 7.30 at the train station. So after that crazy mini-adventure, he actually calmed down at our request, and our tour of Zork was very laid back. On our last night, Taylor um, arranged for a final dinner. He wanted us, though, rather than to meet at the restaurant, to meet at his apartment for a drink first, which was really out of the way, so we were all a little bit suspicious. But we arrived, we had a glass of wine, and then we got our coats on ready to go. And Meredith said, very nonchalantly at the door, "Um, where are we headed? And he just said, you'll see. We all stopped at the door in a unified sense of dread. 
no, seriously, Taylor, where are we going? But he wouldn't reveal the restaurant. And so we became concerned. And thus, we arrived on the steps of this 200-year-old Methodist church that had been changed into a restaurant called the Blinda Kuh, which means the blind cow in German, which is the Swiss name for the children's game here in the United States of Blind Man's Bluff. We pushed open a heavy old door and stepped into a really strange vestibule. It had a seating area, a small locker room, and a smiling woman behind a front desk named Lena. Welcome, Lena said with perfect English. Please put all of your belongings in the lockers, take the key, please make sure you leave your cell phone and watches in the locker, and then come over here and place your meal order with me. And I looked at her and I said, you know, Lena, thanks. I'm just going to keep my purse with me, though. Like, I got my passport and some serious stuff in there. I would really rather not leave it in your little, like, play school locker out here, if that's okay with you. And she said, oh, no, no, no. We cannot permit you to enter the restaurant with anything that might cause a fall. Nothing can be on the floor. A fall, I said. And I looked suspiciously at my son and I said, dude, what is happening here tonight. Lena continued on, oh, here at the Blindaku, our waitstaff, they are all legally blind. And you will enter their world and eat in complete darkness, which will greatly enhance your whole dinner situation. I was extremely skeptical because number one, I don't really like concept dining. And second, I didn't feel like my senses need to be tweaked by anyone. So we selected our meal there in the foyer through Lena um, because we clearly couldn't read the menus once we went into the darkened dining room. And I ordered the large salad with the roasted vegetables, which seemed kind of safe. And our waiter came to pick us up. He entered the room. He was a very pleasant 30-something-year-old guy named Mutsi. Mutsi instructed us to form, literally, form a conga line by placing our hand on the person's shoulder in front of us, squeezing hard and shuffling in unison behind him. So a long trail of us went through a darkened blackout curtain into what appeared to be some kind of weird anteroom. And I relaxed for a minute and I thought, oh, okay, this isn't so bad, I can deal with this. But then quickly, we went through a door and were immediately plunged into total deep space darkness. I mean, the kind of darkness that occurs only on the ocean floor, where those translucent, horrifying, bug-eyed fish live. <laughs> I was guided to my chair by Mutsi and immediately began to bug my eyes out. Over and over, I blinked, rubbing my now useless lids, trying to register some faint glimmer of light from some source. I actually, in the pitch, waved my hands <laughs> over and over in front of my eyes, trying to discern between grays and blacks, but it was useless. As Mark Twain once wrote, it was darker than the inside of a cow. <laughs> and as my eyes strained and bulged, 
in search of some focal point, a dull pain began to flicker in my head along with a really intense sense of vertigo. If I sat back in my chair even a little bit, I felt as if I were falling and I would spasmodically jerk in that like trans transitional state that you have between waking and sleep where you feel like you're falling and then you have to catch yourself. And I remember trying to lighten up the mood a little because we all seem to be very quiet by saying, gosh, I wonder if people are even wearing pants in here. <laughs> I sat absorbed by the heavy darkness and recalled over and over the tagline for the 1979 movie Alien, which was, in space, no one can hear you scream. But it was no use. I was totally uncomfortable with this. And then I heard Taylor say, well, guys, pretty cool, huh? I turned in the senseless void. I raised my hands towards his voice, and I began to <laughs> flip him off. <laughs> our drinks arrived, and Mutsi told us that our wine was at 2 o'clock and our water was at 1 o'clock. And the darkness may have, you know, heightened our senses, but it also created a number of significant challenges. Um, for instance, the only way to tell whether your water was brimming or empty was to dangle a finger down in it and swish it around. But then I didn't want to drink my water because of the whole dipstick finger situation, which was wholly disgusting. So I groped my way towards my two o'clock wine, grabbed it with both hands, and began to gulp it because in space, no one can hear a lot of things, apparently. <laughs> I heard Meredith's voice somewhere across the table um, kick off our lovely, you know, enhanced dinner conversation with, yeah, Tay, hating this pretty hard. Um, <laughs> super uncomfortable over here. And I really decided right then and there, I like Meredith a lot. <laughs> the food was indeed a challenge. The food was pre-cut, all of it, of course. No knives were on the table to avoid, as Mutsi described it, dining accidents. <laughs> so stabbing away at my salad like a toddler might try to spearfish, I ineffectively poked around in this deep, bold void, only to lift an empty fork after empty fork <laughs> up to my overly gaping mouth. If I couldn't impale a large hunk of vegetable, I knew it would be hopeless to skewer a cherry tomato, and I just surrendered. Hungry, annoyed, I put down my fork and I used my hands to just start pawing around the bowl. <laughs> Soon, I felt small rivers of dressing going down my wrist, so I lowered my head down to shorten the distance between my mouth and the invisible table. And I got a really unattractive visual image of myself. There, secretly in the dark, I soon realized that I was eating exactly like a raccoon. And I concocted a creepy image of Mutsi looming silently inches behind my chair like the Babadook. When, I, when it was time to leave, Mutsi escorted each one of us out into the lobby again. I emptied my locker, and I turned and I observed other diners who were coming out, emerging and squinting with very 
you know, relieved expressions. Coal miners, I thought, they seem exactly like victims of a mining accident, blinking, disoriented, and so freaking grateful to be led out into the sunlight again. And the next day, my husband and I said goodbye to Zurich, and we went on to Paris. We were dining out with a French friend that night who asked what we had encountered in Zurich. Now, Parisians don't especially like the Swiss. It's an old grudge connected to World War II and the French belief that neutral power was perhaps history's greatest oxymoron and Switzerland's greatest scam. And I then recounted the Blinda coup experience. Oh, pfft. oh la 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 la. <laughs> he scoffed, using my favorite French expression, which is a wonderful expression for wow, with a whole bunch of negative judgment thrown in. <laughs> he continued, We had this kind of restaurant in Paris, it failed. And then he leaned in with ominous voices and he said, because in France, we like to know what is on the plate. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if he was explaining a deeper cultural issue. It might have been some kind of EU metaphor. I couldn't quite untangle it, but whatever the case, I certainly agreed. It is a very good thing to be able to see what is on your plate. Thank you. In the next story, John Klapko is on the run, trying to escape tormentors that may or may not be real. Uh, so right around this time, uh, three years ago, my life was going very, very well. Uh, I had just moved to Chicago, and within a month of, of being there, I had gotten a job making more money than I'd ever made in my life. Um, I was dating someone, which hadn't happened in like six years, so that was pretty crazy. Uh, I had my own room with a bed, and that sounds pretty mundane, uh, unless you take into account that I was sleeping on a couch in the living room before that. So it was like a really big step up, and I brought my six to twelve beer a night drinking habit down to one to three, uh, and I was, I was building savings, which hadn't ever happened, uh, and th things were going very, very well. My life was very good. Um, except it sort of wasn't. I, on paper, my life was really good. Uh, but in my head, it, it wasn't. <laughs> I, was, I was losing my grip on reality. And I still don't know why. Uh, the previous summer, I'd gotten shit-faced and done a little cocaine and then finished the night off with a big tab of acid and then six more beers. And so I thought maybe, maybe I was like on a perma trip or something. But then again, maybe I had like brainwashed myself the last time I'd done shrooms. Or maybe it was psychosis from alcohol withdrawal. Or maybe I was smoking the wrong kind of weed or it was my crappy diet or the fistfuls of valerian root capsules I was taking. Uh, whatever it was, I became convinced of the following. Number one, everyone around me, including my family, was conspiring to end my life. 
<laughs> the orchestrator, or at least whoever I thought was the orchestrator, varied from day to day. Um, two, all of my actions were being recorded. <laughs> People seemed to know about things I'd done in private. They were repeating words or phrases I'd used outside of their presence. They knew about conversations they hadn't been privy to. The best way to describe it is that my life felt a lot like the Truman Show. Number three, if I didn't leave Chicago by the beginning of June, I would die. Probably by poison or by embarrassment when all of the recordings of my shameful behavior were released. It really did feel a lot like tripping. See, like a, a paranoid thought would pop into my head and instead of acknowledging it and brushing it aside, I committed fully to its belief. Every social interaction became a tightrope walk. People would say things, anything, and I was stone cold sure it was a coded message of some sort, meant to eat away at my will to live. An email from a family member was not an attempt to bond with me. It was really a reference to how I'd screwed up a recipe at work the week before, and shouldn't I just kill myself? The mention of bedbug poison in a random conversation was actually a warning. So later, when the same person offered leftover pizza, I declined <laughs> because I assumed it was poisoned. Not only did I have to try and decide or uh, decode every single thing said to me every single day, I had to analyze every single thing I said or did before I did it because I was being recorded. This was not sustainable behavior. But I couldn't tell anyone what I was going through. Every time I tried, I, I just stopped, barely short of the full truth. And so I pretended like I was fine, if not a little over-medicated. Maybe it was just anxiety. That's what the doctor said when I finally saw one a year later taken in context with the drinking and the, like the valerian root, this herbal supplement, it makes sense. But I justified the anxieties and they became the truth. I acted them out. I mean, now I'm pretty sure they were delusions, but at the time it was real to me, and that's real enough. <laughs> it, was, it was real enough that I tore my room apart uh, electrical sockets and vents included, twice, looking for hidden cameras. It was real enough that I stopped eating food I didn't buy or prepare myself. Real enough that I took the hard drives out of my computer and walked 200 miles with them in my backpack. So anyway, I put my notice in at work and I, I went on job interviews so that no one would suspect that I was about to leave the city. I went to my girlfriend's house and I broke it off, but I didn't tell her the truth. They were listening through my phone. I should have left it at home. With a week left before I was going to leave, I gave my roommate June's rent and told him I might be back in September, knowing full well that I wouldn't. Officially, I was taking the Amtrak and a bus to Traverse City to help a friend remodel his kitchen. Actually, I was taking a train to Kenosha and wasn't sure after that. Uh, Milwaukee and then, I, I don't know. I wanted options in case someone followed me. The second my foot 
hit the front stoop, I was smiling. But it didn't stop me from attempting, uh, attempting to throw the stalkers off. I headed downtown before circling back uptown to get on a Metra train instead of the Amtrak. And after clutching the jackknife in my pocket the whole way there, I walked 30 miles from Kenosha to Milwaukee. By that time, my calves were swollen and sunburnt, and my ears looked and felt like pork rinds. If I stopped moving, my legs seized up. Pissing became very problematic. So these problems, they didn't bother me as much as the, the Truman Show delusion. At least they were solvable. I could, I could backpedal while I pissed, you know? That's easy. But besides that, I had another problem. I'd spent too much time misdirecting my supposed enemies, and so I'd lost track of my funds. I'd spent too much on gear, on the train ticket, new shoes, not to mention breakfast in Kenosha. The novelty of having food brought to me on a toy train was just too, too hard to resist. I had a, about a week before my last check would be direct deposited and hardly any money. Not nearly enough to catch a bus to the UP, let alone a flight anywhere. Not enough to take the ferry from Manitowoc to Ludington. Not enough for a motel. Later I would tell people that this had been a camping trip. I was less stressed sleeping on the streets of Milwaukee than I had been the whole time in Chicago. Two hours at the bus stop with the straps of my backpack twined up around my arm, an hour and a half blending in with drunks on a bench in front of a bar, two hours under, er, under a cement walkway curled up on the concrete, an hour on the steps of a warehouse where a man offered me his chips and iced tea. I cringed away and said, no thanks, waiting for him to try and force the poison chips on me, but he just shrugged and kept walking away. The next morning, I decided to keep walking until I got to Manitowoc. Maybe by then my check would clear. I rested and took pictures of my feet and my swollen calves. But I waited to post them on Facebook until a week after my journey. It's more of misdirection. My legs were still sore and I still couldn't leave my pocket knife alone, but the rest of the way to Manitowoc was pretty nice. It was really good weather. Dealing with the cops who found me dozing under a tree was less stressful than trying to figure out how my phone had been bugged. I was more at peace sleeping on the floor of a public restroom in Port Washington than I was with my girlfriend in my own bed, in my own room. I didn't mind spending the last of my cash on discounted gas station food because at least I could be relatively sure it wasn't poisoned. My legs got worse. On the outskirts of Sheboygan, about 30 miles south of Manitowoc, I got ready to sit down and call it a night even though it wasn't even dark yet. My walk was more like a shuffle. And just then, as if my gang stalkers had cued him, a dude in a pickup saw me limping along and offered me a ride. Now initially, I was very suspicious. What if they had sent him? But I ruled that out pretty quickly when I realized he was headed the opposite direction. Plus, I'd never hitchhiked before. So I got in. My uh, anxieties resurfaced for a split second when he said he was an ex-Marine, but went away again when he declined my offer to send him a check for gas. Uh, so anyway, we get to Manitowoc, and there I had to choose between sleeping on the street again and calling my, my father, who might or might not have been one of them. 
he sounded genuinely worried and even slightly impressed when I told him where I was and how I'd gotten there. So I caved and I asked to borrow money for a hotel room and a ferry ticket. I would end up in Traverse City after all. Not ideal since that was the same destination as, uh, as the official story. But at least I was taking a different route. At the hotel, a lady invited me to a room. I said, no, thank you and took the best shower of all time, and then fell asleep. The ferry ride was smooth, and we passed through a rainbow on the way to Ludington. I thought maybe this meant it was all over, and everything would be okay. It was not. <clears throat> it was a lot colder, and uh, it, rained. it rained more. My legs still hurt, so I walked less than 20 miles a day. Somewhere between Ludington and Manistee, I wandered onto someone's private property, ignoring the no trespassing signs and the fact that I was probably in gun country. I took out my flashlight and bedded down. A few minutes later, a mud truck sped through the trees and blinded me with its high beams and then just sat there idling. The only defense I knew was to pretend it was a T-Rex and just stay still so maybe it wouldn't see me. And eventually it just went away. The engine faded off into the distance, only to be replaced by the roar of a chainsaw, <laughs> deeper from within the property. I shoved my bedding into my bag, I ran as fast as I could through the trees, and I sprinted down the road as far as my legs would let me. It wasn't very far. When I finally got out of the, the wooded area, I found a spot in the tall grass past the ditch next to the road. And just as I, as I was drifting off, I heard something was pounding its way through the grass. More than one thing, it was things. And they stopped maybe six or 10 feet away and started breathing like angry trolls. And then I realized they were deer. And I was pretty sure they weren't in on the conspiracy, so I went back to sleep. That night had gone so well, I decided to spend the next night in a copse of trees next to a graveyard in the rain. If you think about it, that was a very safe bet on my part. Gang stalkers aren't going to go out next to a graveyard at night, especially in the rain. But slugs love it. When I woke up, I was covered with them. The next day, I finally had to use my knife. I found an orange on the side of the road. I didn't want to get scurvy after eating nothing but trail mix and beef jerky the past few days, so I flipped the blade out and I went to town. Trees, walking, another hotel stay. Thank you, Dad. Uh, my closest brush with death came while having a rest near an oil derrick. It screeched to life just as I was taking a picture of it, and I almost had a heart attack. More walking, trees, a nap on a picnic table in Interlaken, and then finally, after yet more walking, and my thousandth sing-through of a change is going to come, I made it to Traverse City. And I'm still here. Even though none of those fears have really gone away completely. Even though I still feel like I'm being watched. Especially right now. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been pointed out to me that I couldn't have been crazy, and I can't be crazy, because I'm too self-aware about the whole thing. And that's probably true. I mean, I agree. Crazy people don't know they're crazy. 
I think what matters is I found a place to stay. I decided to trust the people there. And so far, I haven't regretted it. Thank you. Next, Matt Soderquist tells the journey that brought him to a career in social work. So it's, it might be hard to imagine, <clears throat> it's actually kind of hard for me to imagine, but in college, I had a full head of shoulder-length hair, <laughs> and it was in dreadlocks. And I was a bona fide, patchouli-smelling, Iraq war-protesting, liberal arts, social work student. At nights, I worked at the 7-Up warehouse, and a lot of the guys that I worked with were in their 40s and 50s, lifers, we called them. I worked twice as fast and twice as hard as those other guys, and it would really, really piss them off. One day, this guy named Brian, he was pushing 50 years old, pulled me aside, and he said, I really needed to slow down. He said, not everyone here is going to college, and if the boss ups our productivity because you're working so fast, he didn't think his back was going to make it much longer. I thought maybe he just needed to find another job. But back at college, one of my first assignments for intro to social work was to write an essay about the art of social work. So I wrote something about how the art of social work was about assessing needs and effective interventions and evaluating outcomes. I knew I wanted to get into child welfare, and my first semester, I had to job shadow a social worker for the day. So I chose this local child welfare worker, this guy named Mark. He'd filed a petition recently and removed a couple of kids, and we would be spending the entire day in court. On the day of court, Mark and I were the first ones in the courtroom. Now I pulled my dreadlocks back into a big ponytail, and I borrowed one of my dad's dress shirts and tie, and the judge walks into the courtroom, and he looks down at his docket, and he looks kind of confused, and he looks over at Mark, and he says, Mr. Sorensen, do we have a juvenile delinquency hearing today that I wasn't aware about? Uh, no, Your Honor, Mark said. This is Matt. Uh, he's a social work student, job shadowing me for the day. The jury selection took most of the morning. When I'd imagined a life in the day of a child welfare worker, I didn't picture a full day trial, but it was absolutely fascinating. I felt like I was in a real life episode of Law and Order. After every person testified, I would always do that. Do doom. In the afternoon, Mark took the stand, and for several hours, he testified about the conditions in this house, cigarette butts and dog feces on the floor, the parents in and out of jail. And then the defense attorneys grilled Mark, questioning his investigation, his notes, whether he had done everything reasonable to prevent the removal of these kids. I was sitting in the, I was sitting in the gallery sweating but he was sitting on the stand cool as a cucumber. The judge requested all the counsel into chambers. Mark told me to come along. So we get into chambers, and the first thing this defense attorney tells the judge, he says, Judge, 
the same guy who was just grilling Mark, he says, please tell me you're not thinking about giving these kids back to my client. And it was my first glimpse into the social work world, and I was already conflicted about the injustice of this father's defense versus the best interests of these vulnerable kids. But what I wasn't conflicted about is that I wanted to be Mark. Protecting vulnerable kids every day, not sweating cross-examination for hours on the stand. After college, I got hired with that agency, and Mark and I became coworkers. Every day was like a new episode of Law and Order, but with a whole lot more paperwork. Now, the secret about child welfare is that you don't actually work very much with children. You work with their parents, the parents who are addicted to drugs, who beat their children, and much worse. Your days are spent interviewing the kids about their parents' drug addiction, about how their mom's boyfriend touched them in ways that they're not supposed to. We were regulars at the birthing center, removing newborns from drug-addicted parents who'd already had their other children removed. After a few times, the nurses stopped escorting us out to the car to make sure that the car seat was installed into the car properly. But my marriage suffered. My wife didn't want to hear about my work. She said I was growing cold. She said I cared more for the strangers that I worked with than for my own family. I went to the autopsy of a three-month-old that was smothered to death, and then I went home to my own three-month-old. I didn't tell her about that. I'm not sure if the job makes you hard or if it's hard people who seek out this kind of work, but I have a feeling it's a little bit of both. Mark's on his third wife. One minute you're sitting at your kid's soccer game on a Saturday afternoon, and the next minute you're at the hospital with a two-year-old who has 27 lash marks up and down their body. And after a few years, it wears you down. And I thought about Brian back at the 7-Up warehouse. You know, we're not all going to college, he said. Some of us have to make our back last longer than our job. And it felt like my back was breaking. My marriage didn't last but my career did. And it's not all doom and gloom. I helped homeless teenagers move into their college dorms. I've watched young kids who experienced trauma that would bring grown men to their knees, excel in high school and graduate valedictorian of their class. I did child welfare for five years before I got another job. I didn't want my kids to grow up with a dad who had a cold heart, cynical and jaded. I wanted them to think that they could change the world if they wanted to. I wanted to think that I could still change the world. I ran into a foster parent at my son's Christmas play a few years ago. He said his son, Jose, who I'd placed when he was just two years old, was having a hard time making friends now that he was in third grade. And so he said, he told Jose, to just think of one kid in your class who no matter what is always nice to you. 
And Jose's dad said, he, he said, Bela is always nice to him. Your son, Bela, no matter what, is always nice to him. And he asked him to be his best friend. And almost eight years later, they're still friends today. You know, after 15 years in social work, I, I still love it. Like the first day that I stepped into that courtroom with Mark. Every day I go to work and I get to protect and advocate for vulnerable people. It's still a shit ton of paperwork. But I think back to that first assignment in my social work class. What is the art of social work? You know, the real art of social work isn't about assessments and interventions. It's being witness to the tragedy in our community. Shining a light into the dark corners of people's lives. Being willing to sit with them in their darkness. And knowing to still have compassion for everyone. Thank you. Next up, when the zoo where Jen Loop works closes for good, she is heartbroken to have to rehome one of her favorite animals. The first time I met him, he screamed. Now, baby otters make a lot of different noises. Uh, they grunt, they chirp, they squeal, and they also have a very alarming alarm call when you surprise them. This baby otter uh, was now living at the Clinch Park Zoo. This was our downtown zoo in Traverse City, Michigan. It used to be right up on the bayfront. And I had been working there for about five years. Now, we all, everyone who worked there was very invested in, in the animal's health and how to take care of them. And most of the animals were injured or orphaned. And this was the case of Baby Otter. Now, Baby Otter never got a better name than Baby Otter. Uh, we, had, we had gone through quite a, diff uh, quite a few different names um, with a lot of different animals. And so he was the third otter that I had known there. And he had been orphaned. Um, I think he was washed out in a storm. So this being a small town zoo, a lot of the animals we got were animals that some people had found and they needed a place to live. Now what most people don't know is even our native wildlife out there needs to learn how to survive. So you can't take an orphan baby otter and just say, hey, go be an otter, and they get it. They have to be taught by their presumably parents um, how to catch fish and how to find the right places to live and even how to swim. And so at this point at the zoo, I had been working there for a while and I had worked my way up and I was one of the lead zookeepers. So I got the opportunity to hang out with this baby otter quite a lot. And so we had this purple kitty pool where we'd put him in and of, you know, kind of help him learn, okay, this is, this is what your webbed feet are for. 
this is how you stay afloat. And I can't forget the feeling of baby otter fur. Um, it's incredibly waterproof and it's incredibly soft. The closest thing, I was thinking about this recently, the closest thing I've ever felt to that is actually one of these silicone uh, uh, pan scrapers. So it's this really like fine kind of silicone plastic. And touching this reminded me of the feeling of this baby otter skin. And it's all loose like a good, soft little puppy. And this otter knew nothing else besides the people that took care of him. We taught him how to swim in the little kiddie pool. He eventually graduated to our otter enclosure. The idea was that he would become friends with the older otter we had, but also introducing wild animals to each other in an unnatural environment becomes difficult. And so our older otter, Squirt, never really took to baby otter. So you'd watch them between fences and between gates to see how they were interacting. And if it seemed like they were not getting along, then this would be, okay, we're gonna not quite do an introduction yet. It's a very tenuous thing, even with dogs, which is an animal I work with now. So baby otter was raised there, and I spent a lot of time with him in his little formative stages until 2007 when our zoo was closing. Now, Clinch Park Zoo had been there for about 50 years. And at this point in time, most cities were getting out of the zoo business. It was city run, they were fronting the money for this, and also was a perfect storm of people understanding more about keeping animals in captivity. We did a lot for our otters, so much so that when it came time to decide that they needed new homes, there was a time limit put on this, and my mentor there at the zoo was very certain that she was not going to wait out this limit of time until any animals would have to be euthanized. And so we scoured the nation to find good places for these animals. Um, otters in particular uh, are mustelids. They're actually part of the weasel family. They're closely related to both skunks and wolverines. And so the idea that otters needed a lot of enrichment, a lot of things to do, a lot of things to think about, was not as well explored in 2007 as you might think it would be. We were focusing a lot on um, canines and felines, cats and you know wild dogs, thinking that they needed mental enrichment. We did a lot with our otters. And if anyone remembers visiting that zoo, our otters were fairly happy they would play, they would be out and active, and it was because we did a lot to make sure that they had mental engagement when they were there. So every night when we would take those otters inside, they had to be locked inside because we had, um, towards the end of the zoo days, an open, open top enclosure. And it wasn't that we thought they would get out, it was fairly safely designed, but also if you think about what might fly across the bay front, um, the idea of a bald eagle thinking, hey, there's a pretty easy thing to grab. Um, we would lock them inside at night and we would put up all of these condos of towels and different boxes for them to explore and different scents and different foods for them to eat, all thinking about keeping them mentally engaged when they were in a more confined space. This was one of my favorite things to do because it takes a lot of creativity 
to start thinking about, okay, what could be different for this animal tonight? What could they think about and explore um, as they're having time where they can't be out as they would be in the wild? We also left NPR on for the adders. Um, <laughs> just for some talk noise, white noise and, and sort of talk radio is nice to have in the background. So it was time to move the otters, and the places we found were the National History Museum of the Adirondacks, um, who was, they were building uh, a brand new, in Tupper Lake, they were building a brand new otter exhibit, and they were doing some of this stuff. They were thinking about engaging with the mental capacity of otters. And then the other place we found was Jackson, um, was Jacksonville. Uh, Florida. Now, they were about ready to build a brand new otter exhibit, a, builder, a, a bigger exhibit with more things to do, and they were looking for another otter. So Tracy, my mentor at the zoo, ended up taking Squirt, which was her very bonded friend, um, to Tupper Lake, and I was going to be taking baby otter down to Jacksonville, Florida. Now, I went with um, our zoo director at the time, but it was my job, he was gonna be the driver, and it was my job to take care of Baby Otter or make sure he was okay on this 20 plus hour trip. We planned on doing it in a straight shot, and this was our goal. Now, we put him in a, a big wolf crate, so you think about dog crates, they actually make them bigger, which is nice, um, and more solid plastic for wolves. And we put him in this crate in the back of the van, and it was my job to stay with him to see if you know I could make him be okay and feel okay about this journey. I do remember stopping outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and catching a few hours of sleep in a rest area, and seeing him be so upset about being confined in a way that he never understood. He barked up his nose a lot, um, and by that I mean he was trying to get out. He was trying to, you know, um, find a way out of this crate that he didn't understand. And so it was a harrowing 20 hours. Um, we got there very quickly. We decided not to stop much. And we got down to Jacksonville, and on the off-ramp, as we were driving in, we saw a dead river otter. Of course, the director um, made some sort of not ill-intended joke, but a joke nonetheless of why are we transporting an otter, you know, five states away when they have otters right here. Um, but it was just the start of what ended up being a very hard few days for me and for this baby otter. So we got to the zoo and he had to get into quarantine, which is a fairly standard practice when you're moving animals from state to state. And it was just this narrow room that had a pool that could be cleaned and refilled, but he was gonna be in there for 60 days. And I brought him in there and we played much like we had been used to hanging out. Now, I will say, hanging out with an otter sounds super fun. They have really good teeth. Um, and so some of the otters we were able to interact with in close contact, and some of them we didn't. 
It depended on who they knew, and it depended on what they were used to. And so I was in there with Baby Adder, and I had him have a bunch of his like toys and blankets that he remembered. And I walked out knowing that he would never again have close contact with a human. This zoo was not one that would let you interact that closely with the otters. And so I left him there, made it through that, and we were going to go back the next day to kind of wrap up the, you know, the logistics, which again was the director's job, not mine. And I toured through the zoo to see where their otters were and what the new enclosure would be like. And I called Tracy, um, my, my mentor at the zoo and the person who had raised most of the animals there. And all I remember is crying and her apologizing for having to have to put me through this. And so I went back and I saw Baby Adder again, this time through the fence. And of course, he knew who I was. And of course, it was this recognition of, you're one of the things or the people or the beings that I've always known. And I had to say goodbye. So looking back on this, there is an argument and something I want to witness for the sentience of other animals. It's there. It's something that we've all touched on a little bit in our lives. And the idea that sometimes human life moves around in a way that affects these other beings. So I said goodbye and we hurried back to Traverse City and all I can remember is the whole time I screamed. And I tell the last story of this show about the evolution of my relationship with life in Traverse City, which had a bit of a rocky start. So in 2003, my mom had a birthday wish. She wanted our family to come together because we were all geographically scattered and not often in the same place at the same time. She lived with her partner Gary in a Chicago suburb. I lived in Chicago proper with my boyfriend. My sister lived in New York with her husband and my brother lived in Mexico with his wife and his two daughters. So even though it probably would have been easier if we'd all gathered in the Chicago area for her actual birthday in March, she wanted to do something way cooler and called us all to the Traverse area for an extended weekend in August. And it's funny that I should call that a cool idea because I need to admit something that is not going to land well in this crowd. Before this birthday, I had visited mom and Gary at their up north home a few times over the years and I kinda hated it here so much. These visits pretty much amounted to a six hour drive hanging out around the house for a day or two, and then a six-hour drive back. In my mind, Traverse City was just a place that you go to to be miserable in the interest of pleasing others. <laughs> and this birthday trip had the potential to create its own set of challenges. Their house only had two tiny bedrooms, one bathroom, and what I have learned to call a Michigan basement. 
So the plan was for us to stay at that water park hotel and split our time between there and the house. And it was an ambitious plan, maybe a little too ambitious. Like, okay, it was DOA. Here's the thing. We all wanted different things that weekend, and we didn't anticipate this beforehand. And we can be so good at avoiding conflict that sometimes we miss the opportunity to resolve it pleasantly. <laughs> we wanted different things because we were all at different life stages then. Mom and Gary had been together for 10 years at this point. But, you know, their courtship had begun when all three of us were out of the house. And so we liked him, but we didn't really get to know him that well. We didn't think we had that much in common with him. So he was pretty much mom's very nice partner. My sister and her husband were newly married and had very demanding jobs and social lives. Within seconds of entering the hotel and seeing these untamed children just screaming through the lobby in bathing suits, my sister and her husband gave, they just gave all that noise a hard nope. They just wanted to relax. And so my brother also had a demanding job, but he liked to spend his free time doing family stuff. And it was staying at the water park that had sold him and his family on coming up from Mexico in the first place. And for me, I was struggling to make ends meet while living with a boyfriend who was such a grumpy misanthrope at baseline that after seven years, my feeling for him were starting to tank. And I invited him along because I was fighting it. I was so aware that I had a growing crush on somebody else, but I felt like I owed it to him to prove me wrong but he was showing no signs of having even the slightest bit of wanting to be there. So, and I grew up thinking that if anything went wrong, it was somehow my fault. And here we were, minutes into day one, and everything seemed to be going wrong. So, neck deep in family dynamics here, I immediately appointed myself the fixer. So for the whole trip, when we weren't on group outings, everyone retreated to their respective corners, and with me as the mediator, kinda, it's hard to mediate when you think everyone is right, but also everyone is wrong. So in the morning, I would sit on a lounger and watch my nieces play at the water park while agreeing with whatever my brother had to say about the situation. And then in the afternoon, I would go to my mom's house and sit on the boat with my sister and agree with whatever she had to say about the situation. And then I'd complain to mom and Gary about everyone's complaints. And then I'd complain to my boyfriend that my mom and Gary were letting everybody complain. Of course, I never identified myself as part of the problem. <laughs> I see now how I clearly made my contribution. But on our last night, boyfriend and I smoked cigarettes in the hotel parking lot and stared at Saturn, which was in full view that weekend. It was a perfect northern Michigan summer night, except we were trying to resolve our own shit from earlier that day. We were arguing about my belief that it doesn't matter how sucky your family is being, you stick with them. And he's with me, so he's with them also. And he did not see it that way. And there just came a point in the conversation that I could feel myself actively checking out. I couldn't shake this idea going through my head on repeat, seeing this planet without massive city noise pollution. It's amazing. And the universe, it's huge. And it's so beautiful and an endless source of opportunity. Why am I with this guy? Why am I going to places I don't want to go to? So by the time we headed back to Chicago in the morning, I decided on two things. One, for sure, I was absolutely going to break up with him. And two, for sure, I will never set foot in Traverse City ever again. 
So after my boyfriend and I did break up, the crush did in fact become my boyfriend for the next five years. That did not go so well. Or maybe I should say quite poorly, like poorly enough that when we broke up, I needed a change of scenery and left the country and moved to Mexico for most of 2009. But when I was ready to come back to the States, I had a young pit bull, all my stuff in storage, and a belief that I was too old to couch surf. Mom and Gary generously offered their house while I decided my next move, with the caveat that I'd be pardoning their dust because they had just had an addition put on their house and they were now working on finishing the brand new basement that I would be sleeping in. Okay, yeah, so I did just say six years early that I will never set foot in Traverse City ever again, but a free place to stay can pretty much override most declarations of absolutes. I arrived in Traverse in December 2009 on a very snowy night <laughs> that did not stop for the whole winter, but anyway. Gary was retired then, but my mom was still working, so often he would come up alone for weeks uh, to work on the house. During those visits, he'd drive me around to show me things like how to get to the library, or during dinner, he'd show me some of his favorite passages from this dusty, prized collection of philosophy books that he had. And then when winter passed, he'd take me and my dog out to hiking trails on the weekends. Now, I should back up now and say that at this point, my mom and Gary had been married a few years. But still, the only change in how I regarded him was he was no longer my mom's partner, he was my mom's husband. Unfortunately, my feelings about him took a dive when winter turned to spring. The high-dose prednisone he'd been taking for an illness started to kick in, and since I was the closest in proximity, I was the frequent trigger of the severe mood swings that are reliably an effect of prednisone. Things that set him off were minor. How clean was a spoon before it went into the dishwasher? How crappy I had parked in the driveway during the night? But I never had a chance to explain myself as all my complaints were being funneled through my mom. One thing was clear, I was wearing out my welcome. So by April 2010, I was ready to leave. I started telling my Chicago friends, I think I'm coming back. But then I told a college friend of my plan, someone from New York who'd stayed in Northport a few times when her former stepmother had a place here. And she had this to say, no one lives through a Traverse City winter and then leaves when it turns to summer. <laughs> so if you leave now, everyone's gonna think you're an idiot, starting with me. Just stick it out till the end of September and then see how you feel. And I had to remind myself that Traverse was the very place that had me recognizing in the first place that the universe is full of opportunity. I had a choice. Do I retreat to the easy thing that's what I know? Or do I put more effort into trying something new? So by the end of September that year, I was living on my own place with a decent social life made possible by, by my first real Traverse friend who I met at a Film Fest volunteer meeting. And that same night, we went to a bar and watched the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup for the first time in 50 years, which was super exciting because she too was originally from Chicago. And eventually the bullshit with Gary, it just blew over. I mean, it's easy to forgive feeling mistreated when it's induced by medication. But once mom retired and they became full-time Traverse residents, he and I spent way more time together. And we actually grew to be pals. And he grew to be pals with my dog, Jackson. At some point over the years when I spoke of him, suddenly I had switched to referring to him as my stepfather. So there's now lots of room for visitors at my mom's house in Traverse. 
And at my house, too, because apparently when I declared I would never set foot in this place again, I meant I was going to buy my first house and plant roots. (laughs) (laughs) But since my mom's birthday 16 years ago, my mother, sister, brother, and I have been in Traverse at the same time exactly once. That was when we had the memorial for Gary after he died on Thanksgiving 2017. We spent those days reminiscing about him, but nobody brought up that birthday. Maybe that chaos wasn't as significant to them as it had been to me. But the fact that I've now lived in Traverse for the past 10 years kind of got set into motion during that trip, even though me being here is the exact opposite of what I had declared for my future plans. So I have to say, Living in absolutes, it may get you through a moment, but it's not going to serve you well in life. Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, we're joined today by Pete Kirkwood, owner of the Workshop Brewing Company and co-host of the Capitalist Podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Pete. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Yeah, we're happy to have you here on this gray day that still doesn't feel like June. Don't worry. (laughs) It's coming. Uh, There's hope in the future. (laughs) All right. I am banking on that. (laughs) So Pete is here to speak with us about the theme for our next show, which is the opening show for season seven in October of 2019, Point Counterpoint. So Pete, when you think of the concept of Point Counterpoint, what comes to mind? Well, I I guess I'm going to reveal something that I usually um, save till later in our relationship, which is um, that I'm a lawyer by education. Not everybody knows that because usually people that run breweries maybe have a more interesting background than that. <laughs> but um, for me, that that phrase always evokes uh, ideas of kind of like lawyerly argumentation. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not one that I really like very much because it always sort of feels, when, when people are thinking and are kind of conversing in a mode like that, it always feels like everyone's just waiting for the ne- other person to stop talking so they can talk and not necessarily really paying attention to to each other. Um, so on the one hand, I have this kind of vag- vaguely negative connotation to it as like confrontational, um, legalistic way of conversing. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like w- one of my own defining traits is, um, is a kind of um, congenital inability to only see my side of an argument. I have this like, you know, constant tendency to to be like, well, on the other hand, or like trying to, pu- trying to put myself in the other person's shoes, which can make me, um, you might call it indecisive or you might call it, you know, thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I just, I, it's hard. I'm, it takes me a while to rum- ruminate over big decisions. I'm not, I don't like to have to make decisions right on the spot. Yeah. So, so point, point counterpoint is like happening inside my head all the time. Maybe that is a reflection of my own, you know, educational background. Um, but I, uh, but you know, superficially, I don't, I don't really like that. <laughs> I always feel like there's a way to, instead of um, meeting head on, there's like a way to kind of divert and like jujitsu an argument or conversation, so you're like mo- more like working towards some sort of like collaborative outcome, mm-hmm. like a, like a, you know, if you're familiar with the zero sum, the idea of a zero sum and non-zero sum in game theory, I, I always look for you know the non-zero sum outcome which i don't know how many people necessarily understand that but zero sum is when there's a confrontation where one side 
the one side winning means that the other side loses, right? right? And non-zero-sum means that there's some outcome where it's not a pure win-lose, where there's a potential for maybe we both win completely, which is called Pareto Optimal, or maybe we win, I win a little and you lose a little, um, or I win a lot and you lose a little, or I win, a, you know what I mean? So yeah. there's like this, like, it's not totally a total loss for one side or the other. And um, point counterpoint feels like a zero sum mentality. Interesting. To yeah. me. Maybe I miss my calling as a lawyer because I actually <laughs> do the uh, the same thing where it takes me forever to make a decision because I totally weigh all the options until I get to the point where I'm like, I don't care about this anymore. <laughs> totally. Well, I don't think I don't think you miss your calling at all because I mean I think p- the whole idea of like litigation and argumentation and that's like by definition the judge says you win and you lose. Yeah. Um, normally uh, in, in a sort of a in a sort of guilty or not guilty type of situ- situation. Um, it's always zero sum. There's a winner and a loser That's in court. True, yeah. and, ex- except, I would have and I've heard judges uh, <laughs> describe it this way: when they reach an outcome where both sides are dissatisfied, m- a judge that I used to work for said, "Then then she feels like that's more or less she's got it right." Oh, nice. Interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, nobody's nobody felt like they won, yeah. right? And that because most of the time in human conflict, nobody's completely right and right. nobody's completely wrong. Yeah. Um, everybody's just coming at it from their point of view. Yeah. Yeah, and actually that's uh, something that I want to uh, get back to later in this conversation because I wanted to say, for me, the point-counterpoint, um, yeah. there's a book by Aldous Huxley uh, called Point-Counterpoint, and oh. I remember liking it very much, but I read it like at least 20 years ago, right. so I only remember that I read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, meanwhile, I remember the song lyrics to 80s sitcoms I didn't even like totally. at all, yeah. but brains are weird. Right. Um, but point-counterpoint was also the name of a periodic column that was in The Onion back when it was actually a print publication. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of my favorites, it was like a really long time ago, probably the early 2000s, um, the column, it was the point was, my computer totally hates me, and the counterpoint was, God, I hate that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and that totally resonates with me because <laughs> machine hates me. <laughs> so yeah. Machines hate me. They're, I'm going through a thing with my car right now. We need a, we need a therapist, a, oh, yeah. a couple's counseling or something. I don't know. There's a thing, like, I don't know if you've noticed but it seems like for for some people shit just breaks down like so, like some people are like I I those do people. not touch my computer <laughs> at all you know because there's like some kind of wicked mojo around yeah. <laughs> you know it's like stuff just breaks yeah um and i, I there actually i think is maybe a, a weird scientific explanation for something like that can i digress for a second sure. i read a study about how there's like a random event generator that like either returns a one or a zero mm-hmm. um and then um and they had this thing where they had people sit, sit and think about which outcome they wanted. And apparently the intentionality of the of a person who was thinking about this machine had an effect on the outcome, on the ostensibly random out, outputs of this machine. But And that effect was a signature for particular people, but the outcome was not necessarily what they wanted. So they might be thinking ones, mm-hmm. and it would like deflect to zeros. Um, and it was like microscopically um, detectable. It was like incredibly small thing. But the cool thing was that then they had people who were sitting in a place like 500 miles away thinking about the machine. It didn't matter where they were, right? And it had this like microscopic out, out impact, signature impact on a machine. So maybe maybe this study's completely been debunked. But what <laughs> I found it really interesting because like what if you if you if that's true, then maybe like people do have when a a thing is making millions of computations a second, which is what your computer is doing. Even a, even a tiny 
aberration caused by your weird mojo might actually cause a a crash, right? <laughs> I don't know. This yeah. I just thought it seemed interesting to me, especially the spatial that didn't matter if you were in Australia thinking about it, you huh. know. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I actually I don't think that I actually have the I don't think I break machines. You don't have I the think mojo. that like that they just happen to break <laughs> after I'm near them. <laughs> Uh, as evidenced by the last house that I rented before I moved here, and like one by one, every single appliance just went kaput. Oh, it, like, I, and I kept telling them, like, I assure you, I am using the dishwasher as intended per, inten- per manufacturer specifications. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's also a thing called warranty. Right? There's they're all like, engineered to fail right when the warranty expires. Exactly. Right? Maybe they all were bought right around a certain same time. You know, right. I don't know. So, um, so, yeah. Uh, so also on this idea of point counterpoint, um, it often also registers for me as this song of lament that lately it just seems like folks just are unable to disagree respectfully. Like mm. differences seem more and more intolerable or you know, maybe we're just more aware of it because we have constant access to the private thoughts of people we barely know, right. um, which is relatively new um and any error in judgment no matter how old it is can come back to haunt anyone once they try to enter the public sphere (laughs) um so i know that the key is to listen to each other and to remember that the person on the other end of the conversation you know they might seem argumentative or hostile uninformed flippant uncaring um but still that's a person who you're talking to and i think that gets forgotten a lot Mm -hmm. um so i guess the point i'm leading to here which seems to be um uncomfortably similar to that of Glum from Gulliver's Travels cartoon hmm. from back in the day where he, his, his refrain was, it's no use, we're doomed. <laughs> like a little Eeyore. <laughs> yes, from, exactly, yeah. very much so. So I will take any counterpoint that you've got because I certainly don't want Glum to be my spirit animal. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's definitely um, troubling our kind of social discourse right now, and it's really easy to get, you know, beat down about it. Um, I guess there's two things that I... Um, well, the, the main thing, uh, let me put it this way, the, the way I take action about that in my life, um, it's really actually one of the fundamental drivers of my, my business, <clears throat> the workshop brewing company, like our, our um, you know, our motto is nature, community, craft, and the community part finds expression in a lot of things. You're aware of the way we have, you know, we're hearsay is hosted at our plays, um, and we have uncountable social events and functions where people get together and build community. Um that community thing is uh, is is key to our mission. It's our middle name in a way, um, and uh, that arose out of that's an, a conscious and intentional project that I'm working on here. And it arose out of this idea that um, I picked up from some reading I did a while, quite a long time ago. I, there's a sociologist named I think Ray Oldenburg, who who coined this phrase called a third a third space or third place. Um, and it's not where you work, it's not where you live, it's this other place that you go, and it's a place where you may uh, encounter, or where you're likely to encounter people who don't share your background or your point of view. Um, <clears throat> and those places could be, you know, um, the, the bistros of, of, of Paris, or the piazzas of Italy, or the Zocalo in the town square in Mexico, or, you know, where um, people from all levels of society are kind of interacting in real time in, in their own, in real physical space. Um, <clears throat> I actually almost named the workshop Third Place Brewing, mm. um, and the idea was going to be like a bronze medal would be our logo, you know, because cause it's totally hilarious. I like it because this idea of um, as, another, as a side point is that 
people in competitions who come in third rate their satisfaction with their performance higher than that of people that come in second. Interesting. Even though demonstrably they did worse. But the difference is that second place is comparing themselves to first place. Third place is comparing themselves to everybody else. And they're like, woo, I placed, right? (laughs) And second place is like, damn, I didn't make first. (laughs) So I think that's awesome and cool and hilarious, right? That bad weird quirkiness of humanity that we have these, we just, we don't think straight, you know? Um, that third place is better than second place from the only standpoint that really matters, which is the standpoint of how happy are you? How satisfied are you with your life and your performance, right? So third place is cool. But the, the third place in the context of urban planning and, and sociology is um, this place that you encounter people who don't share your point of view, but you encounter them as human beings in real space. Urban planning in the United States um, in the sort of um, end of the last century was all about eradicating third places. We we sort of like were removing these in, these places where we encountered each other, and the internet is internet is like the culmination of that. You can engage in almost all of the pra, all of the sort of functions that people used to engage in interpersonally in real time in in the real world now online. You don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. Um, and the the, the workshop is designed to be a third place and. We want people, everyone is welcome and invited. I, um, it's funny because my own politics are progressive, um, and uh, a lot of the organizations that want to do events with us are too. But what I, we don't do at the workshop as a policy is we do not um, endorse particular candidates. We do not do fundraisers for p- parties or, f- or candidates. Um, we do endorse particular issues like environmental protection or social justice, but um, I, it's, I do not want to get pegged or to get sort of um, not pegged, but I don't want people in their mind to fix the workshop as a place where, oh, that's where the greenies and the liberals hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I'm afraid of alienating a customer in the sense of like that they won't come and do business with me. That I don't. That is not the important to me. Um, but because it's fundamental to our business mission to be a third place where everyone feels that they are um, invited to come and um, share their point of view and encounter people. And the reason is because this is the, this gets back to what you're, a- you're asking. I think the way we overcome this, um, this tendency to dehumanize each other is to force that humanization, which is if I'm sitting at, at the corner of the bar and I'm having a beer and you're having a beer and we're talking about the weather or sports or how good this beer is, we have like humanized each other. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, if you if it turns out that you and I have a difference of opinion about a politician or a piece of policy, we're halfway through our beer. We're not going to start um, hurling, you know, Molotov cocktails of insulting rhetoric at each other. We're going to we're going to be like, oh, wow, that's weird. Um, the opportunity to persuade people and to change minds and to and to frankly potentially have your own mind changed, right? And to see the nuance of someone else's position and to understand where they're coming from um, happens in the flesh. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen online. No one's ever had their mind changed by a troll, you know? No one's ever s- said, oh, yes, I see your point, and, like, flipped over in terms of their of a political stamp point of view by, uh, you know, in uh, on cyberspace. Mm-hmm. It happens in in the world, uh, you see someone interacting with their kid at their table, and then you're like, "Oh yeah, my kid does that too." And then the next thing you know, "Oh, you're from, uh, you know, the UP too." And then you're you're just talking, and then it turns out that they um, they work for the oil industry, and you are an environmental activist. And but guess what? You both both your kids like 
Pokemon in the same way, and you're both, you know, whatever, having the same beer. And now you're like, oh, you're talking about that, and they're a human being now. Mm-hmm. And so it, if the in the event that the conversation comes around to any subject about politics, you're much more likely to listen to each other and treat each other with humanity. And even if it doesn't come around to that, you're going to be like, oh, that that guy works in the oil industry, or that guy's a green environmentalist. And you know, he, that guy was not, not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Like, that guy was a human being. Right. right? So uh, it's not... We're not going to solve all the problems this way, right? But um, we're certainly not going to solve them the other way, right? So I, uh, for me, the, the greater extent that we're interacting with people who don't share our point of view and who are not like us, um, that's, that's in that direction, hope lies mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, I have actually, there was one time, although mm-hmm. I did not, I was not acting in the capacity officially as a troll, but <laughs> <laughs> um, there was one time that I, uh, there was something that someone had said online that was just, factually incorrect Mm. uh but the way i and i you know i often i just let it go but there was something like he was just you know really digging his heels in Mm -hmm. on this factually incorrect thing but the way i approached it was privately you know i sent him a private message instead Mm -hmm. of in the Mm -hmm. comment conversation and i asked his permission i disagree with you can i tell you why yeah instead of just coming at him so that's one step closer to humanizing that person it's like instead of a forum where there's like an audience and a lot of times people are performing for an audience there's this like person to person connection and i'm sorry to finish what i mean i want to hear the end of what happened uh how it turned out but then i want to i have something else i have a counterpoint okay excellent (laughs) (laughs) well what was interesting was he was open to it yeah and um and i showed him the statistics um that proved him to be incorrect on that point and he he went back into the conversation and said someone just pointed out to me that this comment i made was actually not correct i still believe in what i said but my but my facts were not correct right it's a start that's magic that's that's a breakthrough you know yeah this happened Um, like years ago and i kind of hold on to it like one of my (laughs) achievements well you know i've had a the what i was going to say is i i've done i've taken that even a step further where um and because i have a like a a space i have this third place to to utilize i've had uh occasion where people mm, sort of reacted to me in a way that i thought was a little bit grandstanding or a little bit of like aggressively attack me without really understanding um what i'm really trying to do um and i invite them to meet in person mm-hmm. i'm like hey it seems like you and i see this really differently uh instead of hashing this out in a you know on facebook or you know in some kind of online forum where there's an audience why don't you and I get together? Let me buy you a beer. I'll meet you at the workshop and let's talk it through. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience has been that usually they evaporate at that moment. Um, Interesting. Um, because a lot of, <laughs> there's like almost like a sport nowadays in terms of online communications where people are, they're just trying to get reactions out of each other. And uh, it saddens me more than anything when I hear people um, say words to the effect that they take a particular political position just because they like the way it alienates other people yeah that is to me the most corrosive kind of discourse you can imagine Mm -hmm. um but the antidote to that is offer in good faith right to have a human dialogue with them um because it takes away the audience and then they have to deal with you like most people don't want to have a conversation where all it's doing is trying to make the other person unhappy right. you know <laughs> especially a complete stranger with whom they really have no other beef yeah um so and I, and i'm offering that in good faith i'm not trying to just call their bluff because the truth is i'd love to really talk to people about who don't agree with me mm-hmm. um you know the way that's the only way we make progress with like a good faith open-minded co- 
on, you know, conversation. Yeah. Huh. You know, I, 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 just, I don't know if this is totally relevant, but one thing from a standpoint of someone who has, you know, progressive um, po- politics, I take heart in, in the, the statistics that I've seen that show that younger people tend to share my point of view more than they share the point of view who dis- of those that disagree with me, mm. if you follow. Like, mm-hmm. um, and to the extent that our democratic institutions can survive, uh, you know, for the <laughs> next decade, which I st- maybe, maybe is somewhat uncertain, <laughs> but let's just assume they can, then we can take ho- uh, you know, heart in the notion that the younger people tend to sort of... Uh, agree with I, I take heart in the fact that they tend to agree with me mm-hmm. when it comes to things like social justice and income equality and um, environmental protection the the youth are you know the children are the future <laughs> I believe yeah. the children Whitney Whitney she was a sage <laughs> I can't match her I can't match Whitney um, I don't know yeah, yeah. I kind of went on a tangent there <laughs> oh no no not at all I mean what we're talking about here you know this is a big part of why I love the concept of storytelling shows I mean people stop to actually listen to stories about being human as told by humans and there comes the point that it doesn't matter if we vote the same pray the same eat the same love the same entertain ourselves the same way we might not have experienced life the same way but we've all had our triumphs and disappointments and people in our lives who made us feel great or not yeah, so yeah. great you know we all have the things that make us laugh or cringe we uh, we've loved we've lost and <laughs> like when we listen to each other's stories we can see that do you know what i'd love to hear i would love to hear a storytelling session of um that time that i changed my mind the mm. time that time that i had a fundamental belief change mm-hmm. you know because that is a story that you don't hear very often yeah, um, it takes humility for one um, to change your mind, um, and yeah, it doesn't happen that much. I, I would love to hear people because maybe we could learn something. Yeah, how well, do people's minds change? I mean, know? that could be you know fundamentally what the point counterpoint show is. I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I have we have a since it's not until October, the lineup is wide open, folks. If you want to send a pitch <laughs> right. about a time that you've had your mind, you had your point and then the counterpoint blew your mind um, and made you a different person in some way for better or worse. I mean, we don't always have yeah. to be the hero in our story. Um, and I love how the workshop um, does the same kinds of, you know, the things you were describing to, to achieve the same idea of fostering community. Um, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, the the hearsay. It's just, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> my <laughs> favorite thing too, I do. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so you know, speaking of being unable to tolerate any sort of difference, I have to ask. So, what's the pettiest difference that ever broke up a relationship or kept you from wanting to pursue a relationship? Oh. For example, I once oh, knew totally. a guy who uh, he was around my age, and he was dating a woman who was significantly younger. And I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I'll take his word for it that <laughs> he started to really kind of see her differently when he discovered that she did not know who Evil Knievel was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I confess I do know who Evil Knievel As do I. I have was. an Evil Knievel t-shirt, actually. Oh, dude, I, I had this love toy. <laughs> I was a kid. It was like an Evil Knievel motorcycle, and you had this, you'd like wind it up rah, 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 on the side. The it was thing. like a circular <laughs> thing you wrote, and then you let stopped and it took off. Right. Oh, I made all these jumps. I used to build a fire and have them like jump over it and stuff. It was awesome. <laughs> love that thing. I wish I still had that. So, yes, <clears throat> I can say. I've only ever been on one blind date, and it was a complete disaster. And it went like this: uh, I was at my house in Portland, Oregon, and she pulls up. I, can, I don't even remember the car, but if she gets out, she's attractive-looking, you know, woman. And, she, and this was when I was in my early twenties, 
And um, she comes up to the door, and I open the door, and there she is. And then, and, and then she was, like, wearing this perfume, and it, like, flowed into my house. And I was oh. like, whoa. And, <laughs> and it's, it's not like it was really strong. It was just I really, really disliked the smell of that perfume. And I was mm-hmm. like, whoa, this is not going to work out. <laughs> and so, like, <clears throat> I had to, like, that was the beginning of the date, Whoa. you know? So we went out and we did, I forget what we did, you know, had some food or something. And I was like waiting for it to be over, you know, and I couldn't get past it. It was like, seemed so pathetic, you know, and like, but I just couldn't get past it. And so at the end of the night, it was like time to say goodbye. And it was like, is this when you're supposed to, and, I, and like, I was like peck on the cheek and get out of there. <laughs> um, and I, I think that she anticipated something a little bit, you know, more than that at the end of the night. And, uh, and that was it. Um, and it was the weirdest thing about it is that soon after that, I started dating Liz, who's now my wife. Um, and Liz and I encountered this other woman one time in the Portland airport. And she acted like I had done some terrible thing to her. And she, or like she was mad oh, at, wow. at me. <laughs> and she was like mad at Liz. She was like hostile to my girlfriend. <laughs> I'm like, dude, we went on one date and I kissed you on the cheek one time. And I never, how do you explain that? To, it's like awkward. Like you kind of smell bad and I'm sorry, you know, but it's, and it's bad to me. It probably smelled great to somebody. But anyway, that's pretty petty. I thought I feel, feel a little bit, I'm sorry. I want to apologize um, about that. And now, you know, you're really cute and nice and smart and funny, but it just didn't work out. No, that's, I mean, that's visceral. It's just like, that's, that's big. It's human. You know, I think yeah. there's like a, we do. It's like a visceral thing that humans have. Yeah, if it if it attacks your sense. Yeah, I mean, I once had a boyfriend um, who I sent home. He came to pick me up to do something, and I thought his outfit was too blue. <laughs> <laughs> no way. He was like, it was like the Dude, same I'm shade. Dressed in, I'm dressing completely in blue today. I, have a I blue didn't shirt even on notice. And blue jeans. I oh, did. No. Shall I go now? Well, I was a lot younger then, and like, <laughs> super, I guess superficial. Like, I feel like a jerk about. It. I mean, he was a terrible boyfriend, but well, so. I still feel like a jerk that I because I was just like, nope, you you have to change. But wow. like I would never I, I would never do that right now. I'm actually horrified that I I maybe I shouldn't be like speaking this truth into the microphone for all of the podcast listeners to hear. <laughs> but that was a very long time ago. And yeah, I guess I should do the same, you know, and the random chance that this person even still knows how to find me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you were a terrible boyfriend, but your outfit was just fine and I am sorry. <laughs> yeah. I had to throw that in there too. Yeah. <laughs> so on your podcast, it says, um, there's on, on the site for your podcast, it says that you've always had a conviction that life should revolve around something bigger than economics. So, and it's called Hapitalist. The Hapitalist. The Hapitalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering, do you feel like there's a perspective that capitalism and happiness are generally considered at odds? Um, well... No, not that's actually I, I, I do not think that at all. Um, the observation is so the hapless is, is this podcast which is exp, um, sort of interrogating the idea of human happiness using this the uh, social sciences using emerging uh, uh, learnings in positive psychology, well-being science and economics to um, try to kind of come at happiness and well-being from a scientific standpoint. So what I know is that, Money will make you happy while you're poor, right? Um, that is to say, and this is intuitively obvious to almost anyone, when you're really poor, a, a thousand bucks is, is a massive 
is massively important. When you're rich, a thousand bucks is a rounding error, right? And so the incremental um, boost in happiness and well-being that comes from incremental income is significant at low income, and it's insignificant at high income. There's a curve there. The shape of the curve is debatable, but that it, that there's a curve is 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 certain. Research confirms it, and intuition uh, makes it clear. Um, so there is, you know, economics or for now, let's say economics. We'll talk about capitalism in a second, but economics and well-being are not at odds at all. Economics are a fundamental part of driving human happiness and well-being. Um, it's just that, uh, especially for the wealthy, uh, the continued pursuit of economics or the continued dedication of, of most of their life's resources in the form of energy and time towards increasing their wealth is not efficient at achieving what the goal that, that I would say they would even say is their own goal, which is to maximize the happiness of, and contentment of their own life. Uh, so who wouldn't have that as a goal, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I'm assuming that rich people had that same goal, and to the extent that they're spending all their time and effort in um, amassing ever more wealth, I, I, I submit and I can demonstrate through scientific studies that their time would be better spent uh, doing other things. Mm-hmm. So, um, And so to talk about capitalism specifically, uh, capitalism and its kind of cousin democracy, uh, we can talk about the sort of relationship or lack thereof between those two, but it, it, there is a correlation. Um, uh, capitalism is, has demonstrated itself as, ma- as monumentally effective at yielding um, increases in, say, uh, GDP or in, in, in individual wealth and the cor- with all the corollary well-being benefits that come with increasing wealth. So I, I think capitalism is freaking awesome. The thing about capitalism, though, is that it's freaking awesome at delivering more wealth to specifically to the owners of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while that's more or less fine it, when you're talking about a, a, a population or an economy that where most people are really poor, um, it's a great mechanism for um, inspiring creativity and leveraging capital and all these things that that we we know go along with capitalism the problem is that when in a, in mature capitalist economies economists are now sort of studying what happens then and when you contemplate the, the uh, internal rate of return on owner on um, on capital versus the internal rate of return on labor which is a simple way of saying that is how much money you can make by owning things versus how much money you can make by working by by you know out working with your body or with your time, um, there's this inherent tendency of divergence between the two, which is to say, the more things you own, the faster you get wealthy. And when you're working, when you're getting paid for your your labor, your ability to become wealthier is uh, the the curve is a lot flatter, um, which means a sort of inexorable um, uh, increase in the divergence between the richest and the poorest right so that uh is that's the problem it's the problem is with what happens when capitalist economies become really mature Mm -hmm. um this like built-in um inequality uh acceleration and my thing is that like if we can help the wealthy to understand that they're misallocating their own resources by by doing this um and that, that if they were to allocate the resources in a different way they would be happier um that's like the lesson number one of capitalism is teach the rich how to pursue their own happiness better the secret mission or the secret payload of ca- of capitalism is that when the wealthy engage in these practices the side effect of the uh, these practices the ones that 
maximize their own well-being and that don't necessarily maximize their own wealth, the corollary effect of that is um, it is increases in well-being that devolve to their communities at large. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, that part takes a little bit of explaining. And that's really what the Happiness Podcast is about, is like exploring those side effects that happen when the wealthy start to do a better job of, a, of pursuing their own self-interest. Hmm. Um, and that's what m- inspires me. Interesting. Um, so it's a version of trickle-down economics that could actually work. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, God, I definitely don't. Th- yeah, I didn't mean uh, to step uh, onto a hornet's nest that on that way. one. <laughs> uh, but it's just a, it's just a, 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 a let's call it enlightened self-interest. Interesting. Um, okay. And, and it, to get to your thing about um, how I think that people should be working on something that has more, that means more that's more than just economics mm-hmm. that's what the workshop is supposed to be for mm-hmm. where i'm it's conceived as a laboratory for uh um exploring these ideas where as as the the founder of the company my fundamental job is to articulate an inspiring vision for why you should come to work um and for me that's encapsulated in nature community craft we exist to protect and restore the natural environment that we're blessed with here Mm -hmm. um you know that's nature community is to sort of embody and reinforce the already vibrant community that we have here in traverse city and craft is to provide meaningful work and to engage in handmade awesomeness right so like if if that's inspiring to a particular person then they're going to come to work already psyched about what they're doing and when they see that once they come there as a as a community the workshop staff um, values and dignifies the work of the guy who's mopping the floor and the person that's cleaning cleaning the, the the dishes and the bartender and the chef and everybody's everyone has the same amount of dignity because you can't eat great food off a, off a dirty plate and you can't drink great beer out of a dirty glass so cleaning the glass or the plate is as important as making the food or the beer and we all really live that and mm-hmm. we say it all the time and and every you know so like there's this sense that if all work has meaning and every role has dignity then you're halfway there because because washing the dishes doesn't feel like i'm just slavishly working for a paycheck so that the man can can get richer um you combine with this idea of meaningful work and dignified work with open book management where everyone at the workshop is entitled to know all of the all the numbers they know what what the bottom line is they know how much it costs and they know what comes out the bottom and they know where the money goes Uh, everyone knows what everyone gets paid Mm -hmm. um then there's no there's none of this stuff about look this isn't fair right um and that's a hard thing for a lot of businesses to do but we've been doing it from the get-go and that's how that's why it's a laboratory yeah oh that's fantastic a little bit of a monologue (laughs) there but thanks for listening (laughs) oh no that was actually really interesting i i I have so much more I want to say on that, but I know that uh, you have an appointment to get to, and uh, our listeners well, this is point counterpoints. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, should, I could uh, go. We could go on for yeah, days. Back and forth. <laughs> we have the marathon podcast session. Um, I or do. Or they could just to... check out the Hapitalist. It's on yeah. iTunes and everywhere else. Yeah, please, but everybody. Search for the Hapitalist because if you just put in Hapitalist, it thinks you made a typo and it sends you to Capitalist. Oh, <laughs> so that's rude. Hapitalist has two P's. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, just one more thing. I just wanted to say um, you mentioned in one of your podcasts episodes that when you and your wife uh, when you and Liz moved here um, you didn't really know anyone and you wanted to bring specific people into your sphere and so you were just like on this like 
mission to build a community. And I just think that's so interesting because kind of hearsay is my own version of that where uh -huh. I'm new and I'm looking for specific people and I'm going to build a community. Yeah. I was looking for the writers, the critical thinkers and the people who find magic in the ordinary. Nice. And I just feel like work, the workshop is such a perfect home for exactly that. So yeah, we, uh, for those of you out there who don't know, we had started our show at another bar that after three years it closed down and I thought that I was going to have to close down the show entirely because we couldn't find a space that uh, worked for what we were doing and um, when uh, Andrew from the workshop mm -hmm. approached My me beloved general manager mm -hmm. oh he's he's fantastic yeah. and uh, like him and awesome sound guy AJ of course yeah hey, no buddy. it's a, <laughs> the entire staff I mean I just like the show that we did this past Monday night you all just crushed it yes. and I just feel like it's such a perfect like with what the workshop wants to do um as a as an entity just is so perfectly Com, you know in alignment with what hearsay wants to do and so thank you for giving oh, us God, a home thank you so much i mean it's you're the kind of people that i wanted to you know that i that i was looking for you know um i i seek the same kind of people that you do interesting people who are asking questions who are trying to understand the world and maybe um make it better in whatever way that they feel that they can um we Liz and I have lived in a lot of different places all around this country and in several places overseas, and we chose Traverse City as the place that we wanted to plant this seed and nurture it into a, you know, into a mighty tree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and all the different people that are sort of helping water and fertilize and make it all make it all grow. Uh, it, I think, one of the things it takes a little bit of time. You have to keep on saying your truth, and you have to stick to it, and you have to keep on being reliably the same at least that's what i have found it's taken a while for people to sort of like believe that i'm going to do what i say that i'm doing um but now it feels like the roots are getting strong and people are starting to understand the the vision that we had and i think you're seeing the same thing mm -hmm. i think hearsay is uh, really becoming more and more robust and new opportunities as your tree grows you can see further right mm -hmm. and you can sort of start to shade more areas and maybe drop little little seeds here and there and <laughs> new things will grow um i i'm always going back to this analogy of planting things mm -hmm. some seeds take longer to, to take root some don't germinate at all and some grow fast some grow slow some grow strong some f fade out you know it's just got to keep planting though nurturing and trying to grow that grow that for us yeah, absolutely. Uh, my stepfather, who uh, the story that I tell in this particular podcast episode, mm -hmm. um, uh, one of his things was water what you want to grow. Right. And so, yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you for joining us today. This it's was wonderful. I love, <laughs> I, well, I love this. And, uh, you know, thanks for providing forum for um, people to tell awesome stories and share their truth. Yeah. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. And thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and another thank you to Pete Kirkwood, our in-studio guest. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in October 2019 when the Hearsay main stage begins its seventh season, and our theme is Point Counterpoint. Find out more about Hearsay, including all the upcoming Season 7 themes, at hearsaystorytelling.com, on Facebook, and on Instagram.
Thanks for listening.